Hello and welcome to Head to Head, an investment week podcast where we bring people from opposing sides of a debate to discuss their views. I'm Eve Maddock-Jones and I'm the Features Editor at Investment Week. And today I'm joined by Richard Kay, Comgest Growth Japan Fund Manager, and James Eyre, the Co-Head of Investments at CCLA Investment Management. And we are discussing the pros and cons of of Japan's monetary policy towards inflation and the investment sentiment around that. At the time of recording, the Bank of Japan has taken a very different approach to tackling rising levels of inflation, opting not to raise interest rates or commence monetary tightening, but to go down the totally opposite path. Admittedly, Japan is dealing with much lower levels of inflation than other economies, now at 2.4%, but this is still ahead of the 2% inflation target. The question being looked at here today is, has the Bank of Japan got its policy right? And what are the consequences of it becoming an economic outlier from an investment sentiment perspective? Maybe starting with both of you, you could just kind of lay out what your stance is on the Bank of Japan's current policy regime and how your investment sentiment lies with that, um, starting with you, James. Uh, thank you so much, Eve. Uh, I guess to, to start off with and set the scene, uh, the governor of the Bank of Japan, uh, Haruhiko Kuroda, um, has pursued a decade-long ultra-loose monetary policy really aimed at reflating the Japanese economy. Uh, and you mentioned uh, Japanese inflation is indeed currently above the uh, Bank of Japan's target of 2%. But if you look at their most recent outlook report, uh, you can see that uh, they've revised up inflation uh, for full year 22 to about 2.3 percent. But uh, estimates for 23 and full year 24 are still very low, at 1.4 percent and 1.3 percent. So well below the uh, target for the Bank of Japan. Uh, the ongoing price increases are, are likely to be mostly one off uh, and driven really by uh, price hikes, uh, both in energy uh, but also in food and also caused uh, in large part by the decline in the yen that we've seen over the balance of this year. And it's difficult to really forecast sustained inflation without uh, uh, support from demand picking up in Japan. Um, and that's, you know, most most of the issue can be traced to, to stagnant wages. Uh, and that is really at the heart of the conundrum uh, within Japan uh, and the outlook for Japanese inflation is can wage uh, growth take uh, take hold in Japan uh, and can uh, Japanese consumption uh, drive a more sustained um, outlook for inflation in the domestic economy? Uh, and I would suggest that uh, Kishida-san uh, is very much of the view uh, that the Japanese economy remains quite weak and in need of um, uh, very loose monetary policy and hence the uh, yield uh, curve control uh, framework that remains in place at the moment. corroda has got uh, nine months left to serve uh, as governor of Bank of Japan. Uh, and what we can say is that some of the recent changes at the Bank of Japan in terms of the board that set the um, policy rate does sort of suggest uh, that we may see a change in policy uh, at the exit uh, of uh, Kuroda. Um, we've seen the appointment of a couple of new appointments who are more um, hawkish uh, and more critical of the historic uh, position that the Bank of Japan has taken on inflation and the economic outlook. So it's going to be a very interesting time over the next uh, 12 months to see the direction of Japanese monetary policy and, and where that might lead. Yeah, thank you for that, James. And Richard, on your side, obviously based in Japan quite a lot, you get quite a bit of a grassroots domestic view. What's your um, outlook on the current policy regime? 
I agree. Thank you very much indeed, Eve, uh, for the opportunity and for the questions. And I agree with uh, a number of points that James um, offered just now. Um, I, I perhaps disagree a little bit, if I may, to the extent that living in Japan and watching Japan for a while, um, I, I think it's very difficult to, to achieve um, long-term inflation in, in this economy. And, and, I, and I therefore think that the Bank of Japan, even after Mr. Kuroda, uh, will probably retain um, a very accommodative um, approach. Um, James mentioned the, 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 the lack of wage inflation, which, which is a major question in the entire inflation debate. Um, I, I think wages will remain muted, wage growth will remain muted in Japan for the very simple that re reason that Japan has a large pool of, of contract or short-term labor, um, which is um, diluting uh, the, the average wage in Japan. What's often not mentioned is that the apples-to-apples apples wage, uh, the, the wage which Mr. Suzuki earns um, each year, is in fact rising. Uh, just before coming on this call, we were speaking with the CEO of, a, of an IT company in Japan whose um, average engineer wage, wage is rising, reflecting demand for IT services. Mm -hmm. But the overall wage of Japan is diluted by a large pool of contract or short-term labor, which in fact is, is mostly women returning to the workforce and being willing to work for a, a cheaper wage. Um, and as long as that structure remains, um, a major force for inflation, which we see in other economies, does not uh, pertain in, in Japan. Um, another point which I think makes inflation difficult to achieve in Japan in a structural form is, 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 is the consumption environment. James referred to this. Um, again, I live in this place, and, and I know that a growing portion of our consumer population is old people who do not buy houses or cars, uh, the, the major items which typically become, um, uh, should I say, targets of inflation. Um, we, therefore, I think both on the wage side and on the consumer side have reasons not to uh, expect structural inflation. And another major difference, I think, between Japan and other economies, which is, which is not discussed so much, is Japan did not do a lockdown. Remember, I've lived in this country for 27 years and I lived here in 2020 and we didn't lock down in COVID. Uh, most of our businesses in Japan remained open. That means we do not have the major dislocation which has gone with reopening in most Western economies, um, U.S. has to hire people to work at gas stands. Um, U.K. has to hire people to work in, um, uh, in, in blue-collar jobs. Japan never had that because those people were never fired. Uh, and, and the wage inflation and dislocation that's gone with that and been, I think, an inflationary factor elsewhere does not pertain in, in Japan. Um, I therefore think that the accommodative policy of the Bank of Japan will um, remain. Um, Mr. Crowe has been very explicit that the 2% um, inflation we're seeing right now pro forma uh, is driven by transitory factors. I know transitory is a slightly um, contentious word in the inflation debate, um, but I think that the structural, uh, as I said, factors against inflation are rather strong. It seems, would it be fair to say then that obviously the global conversation around inflation Japan is kind of being grouped in with that global macro picture, but there are some specifics which, in a way, what you're saying, Richard, justifies why the central bank can and should go down this policy path because there's certain, you know, things that have gone in Japan, such as not having a lockdown, et cetera, that warrant why they've gone down this policy, for example. That's, that's exactly what I think. I think that Japan is UI generous. It's unique. It's, it's often been... Um, different in, in so many areas and in this inflation debate it's different just as actually 
in the, in the COVID debate, Japan was different. That, that's not the topic of today's conversation, but it may, I think, be an area of interesting analysis in the future. Japan has done things differently. Um, and, and of course, I think that the implications of that difference uh, for investment approaches in the Japanese markets are very important. Again, that's a slightly separate discussion. Well, that kind of leads into my next question, which was, you know, this sense that Japan is becoming an economic outlier in a sense. Um, you know, some comment that I saw from you, Richard, at the beginning of the year was, you know, Japan would have this lower level of inflation and it could be seen as a kind of refuge from the rising levels of global inflation from an investment perspective. That hasn't really materialised and it's been quite a negative overseas investment sentiment around Japan, you know, a big um, episode recently was hedge funds, you know, pulling quite a lot of shorts against it, for example. So, like you were just saying, how do you think the investment sentiment overseas is of Japan currently? How would you describe that, both of you? I'll, I'll shoot first and, and, and then um, invite James to, to, to disagree with me. Uh, in very simple terms, I think the overseas sentiment perspective on Japan is, is, is wrong. Just one word. I think there's a major um, mistaken perception in, in the average overseas investor perception of Japan, especially in the idea that Japan must have inflation and Japan must therefore be invested in uh, for its inflationary themes. If you look at the sectors which have gone up in the Japanese market for the last year, there have really been three. It's been banks, uh, real estate, and I suppose shipping. So you could add commodity companies as well. Japan has a few of those. Um, you'd expect those sectors, three or four, to do well in an inflationary environment. And that's what overseas investors obviously are thinking when they buy those sectors. And it's mostly overseas investors who are buying those sectors. Uh, but, but because we don't have inflation, the fundamentals of those sectors are actually rather bad. Uh, bank loan volume is um, barely growing. Debt interest margin is barely improving a little bit at the major banks, perhaps. Um, real estate values have rebounded since COVID, but they're not structurally improving. And versus pre-COVID, they're not particularly high. Uh, and their real estate um, developers' um, asset values, um, profit figures and so on, um, rent uh, levels, utilization rates and so on, are not particularly impressive. Um, all of the in inflation-related themes, which I think overseas investors have expected to find in Japan, have rather disappointed. And that may be why, as you said, some people who are hoping for a quick buck on the inflation story in Japan have gone home because they didn't find it. We think there are far more exciting uh, stories in Japan than the, than, than the fake inflation theme. Uh, and of course, those are the stories that, that, that we're looking to invest in. Sorry, I, I spoke rather too much there. <laughs> no, absolutely not, Richard. James, on your side, from a, you know, a global investment perspective, how do you picture you know, the sentiment around Japan? How do you view that yourself personally in your own investments? Sure. I mean, I think Richard articulated it well in his in his prior comment, which is that I think Japan is a special case in from an investment standpoint and requires uh, specialist knowledge as well to, to a degree uh, to, to make uh, good long term investments. Um, I think taking a step back uh, and looking at the success of, uh, of Abe's time in government, um, you know, I think one of the significant changes he ushered in was the appointment of Kuroda, who we've just been talking about, and uh, the, the monetary uh, aims that Kuroda has brought to bear in Japan. Um, while they have not fully borne fruit, uh, they have probably been uh, you know, Abe's most powerful legacy, that and uh, changes and shifts in Japanese corporate governance. Um, and we would certainly note that Japanese corporate governance has um, significantly improved uh, with uh, Kuroda's uh, uh, sorry, not Kuroda, uh, with 
Arbe's um, Corporate Governance Code being introduced in 2017. Um, I think the issue, though, is that Japanese corporate culture, while it is changing uh, and improving, it is still... Uh, got quite a long way to go in the context of international and particularly developed market standards. Uh, and we've seen with sort of successive uh, scandals, some of them quite recent uh, scandals, uh, that there is a culture uh, within uh, J Japanese corporations. Uh, and, it's, and it's not right of me to tar all companies with the same brush, but speaking generally, and there's always danger in, in generalizing, you know, the corporate scandals continue in Japan. And that is part because some of the structural reforms in the corporate governance codes have been very helpful, but there's still quite a long way to go and quite a lot of reforms still required to improve the corporate governance standards within Japanese uh, institutions. We would certainly say there are a set of companies that are best in class, but there are also a, a set of companies that are, that are, that are worst in class. Um, and so it's a positive sign that we're seeing from an international standpoint, but it, it's still a long way to go. I think there are other structural issues, uh, some of which we've touched on uh, within uh, the context of investing in Japan. One is obviously, and I think very central to the debate on uh, Japanese corporate profitability, is the rather sclerotic and slightly bizarre labour market situation where, as Richard uh, said earlier, you have on the one hand effectively a group of employees who are full-time, fully protected and have a job for life, uh, and then on the other hand, uh, you have a group of employees who effectively have very few labour rights uh, and uh, typically uh, ha live, live and work under fairly precarious um, standards of employment law. Um, and that, I think, goes to the heart or in part of, of why Japanese corporate profitability uh, has, has not improved um, significantly over the past decades uh, uh, or so. I think, you know, a lot has been written about the corporate governance code shifting Japanese corporate culture. So we've seen uh, more share buybacks. We've seen uh, more dividend increases. Uh, and we've certainly seen an improvement in, in margins uh, in the short term. We've also seen improvements in ROE. But we would note that those are accounting measures largely. And if one looks at the uh, return on invested capital metric, so an economic measure of return, uh, then Japanese uh, corporate returns still uh, trail global returns by quite some margin. It's around 3.5% uh, that the average Japanese corporation generates relative to the world that generates around 8% and the North American corporation, which is generating in excess of 10%. So while we would note that the market looks cheap from a, a, a sort of a PE basis, it's around 12 times, and 32% of the topics is trading on uh, multiples of around five times EBU bit DAR, we would say that's just one data point, and one really needs to look at the other fundamental characteristics of corporate Japan. Now, I've talked very generally about corporate Japan. There are, of course, some exceptional Japanese businesses, uh, and, and they are appealing from a global uh, fund perspective. Uh, so I, I don't really wish to, to sound like I should tar all Japanese companies with the same brush, but, but speaking generally, certainly there is a lot of room for improvement in corporate Japan. And on, on your side, Richard, you know, how do you respond to that? You know, the, the story around governance in Japan has been a long and ongoing one. And I know from doing the outlooks for Japan at the beginning of this year, it's a repeated theme that a lot of Japanese fund managers do focus on. And particularly the point about, you know, the valuation of Japan within global markets as well. So where, where do you see that, you know, that part of you know, Japan's business journey at the moment? 
um, I agree with many points that James made. Uh, the overall picture on Japan, uh, the, the general comments on Japan, uh, are improving significantly um, in those areas that, that, that James mentioned. Uh, Abe's uh, corporate governance code, the Tokyo Stock Exchange's uh, various reforms, uh, the, the so-called JPX 400 um, quality index uh, with, with, with metrics like um, external um, outside director counts and, uh, and shareholder returns. Uh, all of those have fostered uh, improvements across corporate Japan, but uh, there are areas of, um, of significant underperformance uh, versus Western economies, can I say. I, I think all of those observations are fair. Um, at the same time, as a portfolio manager, one does not invest, in a sense, in, in a country or, or even in, a, in, a, in, a, in an economy. Uh, one invests in individual companies, as, as, as James himself, I think, is saying. And, 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 and the point there is that there are a lot of companies in Japan which actually are doing great things. Uh, that are outperforming their global peers um, on return on capital, on capital discipline, on operating margin, on growth, um, and which uh, speak the shareholders' language, often because there is one big founder or founder family which is a large shareholder and understands the shareholders' interest because it is a shareholder. Um, and, and I think that that kernel of great Japanese companies, which has in a sense a, a day zero mentality, uh, to, to, to borrow that phrase, um, but, but often gets ignored uh, in all the, the general noise about Japan. That, that kernel of Japanese companies um, is, in fact, a great area to invest, not only to beat the Japanese index, but even to beat global indices. I'm talking about companies like, like Keyens, which is somewhat like, actually, actually decried in, in governance terms, but is delivering fantastic returns, fantastic capital discipline, outpaces Cognex, which is its obvious global compa- um, comparable, um, Fanuc, versus Rockwell Automation is, is, is another classic example. Um, these are companies which are doing the right thing. Uh, they speak shareholders' language, but they're not valued for that. Uh, and, and we think these are really the exciting places to look in Japan, perhaps rather than the inflation trade, which I think a lot of um, foreign investors have looked for, uh, again, to make a quick buck in Japan, which, which hasn't really materialized. Sure, and I guess... One of the kind of takeaway points I'm hearing from this is, you know, Japan, you both said, you know, is a kind of a special case scenario due to, you know, what it has gone through economically and within markets the past 20 years and this kind of change. But it seems to be that it's it's becoming an outlier economically, but it still remained an outlier within markets as well, in the sense that overseas investors haven't kind of been repeatedly drawn back there yet, despite, you know, these positive changes that are coming through and I just wonder you know why is that is it still kind of you know the anxieties of what I'd gone in Japan prior that it just can't shake still if I can shoot off a few words on on that point yes um I I think that those anxieties that you mentioned now uh, Eve are important from the overseas investors perspective the fact that Japan is simply still not an awful awfully well known uh, the fact that analyst coverage on Japanese stocks is something like uh, one-fifth uh, of, of what one, one sees in other markets. Uh, we, we were looking at some figures recently that there are seven analysts per stock in Japan and over 40 per stock in the U.S. markets. Um, an awful lot of Japan uh, is, is under-researched, uh, misunderstood, uh, and I, I think that's uh, a problem but also an opportunity. Um, there's one additional point I'd like to mention, which I think perhaps doesn't get an awful lot of publicity. It is that the Japanese institutional investor has been selling the Japanese markets for about 20 years, starting roughly 1991, 1992, whether that's Japanese banks, Japanese pension funds, uh, moving into 
government bonds as opposed to equities. There's been a large institutional seller in the market for about two decades. That hasn't happened in other markets. UK pension funds haven't been consistently divesting US equity, uh, UK equity, uh, US equity uh, similarly. There's a large home country bias rather. The last eight or nine years have seen a change in that pattern of behavior. Uh, the Japanese institutional investor is returning uh, to, to its market. Japan is buying Japan again. Uh, it, it's a slow but gradual process. Um, and, and a lot of that incremental money is, in fact, going on good companies, engaged companies, uh, speaking the language of, um, of, of shareholder rights, uh, ESG, capital discipline. And when I talk about the Japanese institutional investor, I'm not talking only about the government-sponsored pension plans and so on. I'm, I'm talking about people like us who need to make money for pensioners over the long term. Uh, and, and that returning sophisticated institutional domestic investor, uh, I, I think, is going to be the long-term savior of the Japanese markets, not only because there's a lot of money there, uh, but because the targets of those investments uh, will be very different to, to, to what they've been in, in, in the last decades. James, from your side, you know, what do you hear from clients and kind of constructing a global portfolio? How much of a piece of the puzzle does Japan make of that or, you know, within the context of what Richard was just sure. saying? Sure. I, I agree with a lot of the, the points that Richard has just made. I, I guess taking a step back from a global perspective, you know, when we think about making investments, uh, a global standpoint, we don't start with the fact that we need X percent in, in a given geography. We, we yeah. are really looking for the world's best companies, and we, we're pretty agnostic as to where, where they may be domiciled. And we don't think that that is particularly relevant in the, in the sort of modern kind of context of thinking about how do we create an optimal uh, portfolio. And therefore, uh, you know, I, I think that many Japanese uh, businesses are of interest to us, but, but when one compares them to global, the global uh, investable peer group that we assess, I would say that there are certainly, as Richard points out, a number of Japanese champions, um, but often we struggle to, uh, to find uh, investments that both are great global leaders, uh, but also stand up to uh, scrutiny on a valuation basis. So we often find great Japanese businesses, uh, businesses like Obik, for example, uh, which is uh, it's an equivalent business to SAP in uh, Germany. Um, it's actually, I think, a much better managed business than SAP in Germany. The, the issue I have with it, though, is that it trades on a, a fairly ferocious uh, multiple for the growth on offer. And when one thinks about it in a global context, I would contrast it to a name like Microsoft, which trades on a much lower multiple but offers um, probably slightly better growth than, than OBIC on, on, a, on a sort of five-year view. And I think that's often the issue from a global standpoint, is when one finds these great Japanese businesses, are they, do they stand up to scrutiny at, on a in a global context? And I, I think that is the challenge uh, that often we find. I, I would comment that the great Japanese businesses that we come across uh, are often operating in niches which they have specialized in. It's often in the semiconductor sector um, and areas where uh, high technical uh, or mechanical expertise is required. Japan, Japanese companies have typically not offshored a lot of those businesses. They remain onshore in Japan. They're highly skilled 
uh, require a lot of engineering expertise. Those are really intriguing businesses, uh, and we do uh, monitor them, uh, and we do invest in, in a small, very small number of them. So it's not a, a case that I think that uh, institutional global investors have run away from Japan. I think Japan has always been on the radar because Japan holds some very intriguing companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but in a broad brush standpoint, the Japanese market, I would say, you know, from a global standpoint, one is interested in individual Japanese companies. One is not so interested in, in the Japanese market as, as a sort of beta exposure, if that makes sense. Sure. And perhaps it's arguable to say that Japan, like many other markets, is, you know, it has just been overwhelmed by, you know, the one way trade that has been going on the past few years. You know, the kind of dominance of you know the US and what that particular market has offered and seemingly the type of companies investors have wanted. Japan hasn't fit that bill in many ways. You know, other markets happen, you know, the UK as an example, not that, you know, like for like, but in one of those situations where it just hasn't been a go to space so much because there has just been one almost. Um, Something that was mentioned um, by both of you and I think it would be important to mention, obviously, the recent events uh, with Shinzo Abe and, you know, his really um, tragic death recently. Obviously, he has a huge legacy um, economically in Japan and socially as well. And I think, you know, just to touch on, you know, what kind of impact the absence of him going forward will have. You know, there's still um, there's still the elections coming up in Japan and, you know, that legacy continuing you know from both your perspectives you know what is the impact that you know of his absence going to have if if any uh, I, 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 do you want me to go have a go first i mean i think i think the, the assassination of abu was kind of key issue for japanese politics he held a very important role in the ldp which has been in power pretty much in an uninterrupted way since 1955 and he controlled, uh, you know, significant uh, voting bloc within the LDP. Uh, and the new uh, Prime Minister, Kishida, I, I think will will or may find it more difficult, uh, potentially, uh, with with his loss, as as that bloc may may splinter. Um, it doesn't immediately have um, a clear leader, uh, and Kishida's agenda seems to be adapting and evolving to various currents, uh, both domestically within Japan from uh, important voting blocs, particularly, you know, if one thinks about who votes in Japan, it's largely uh, uh, the elderly uh, and and less so uh, the younger demographics. That's, again, a sweeping generalisation. But if one thinks about, you know, who one's playing to in the gallery, uh, that, that, that is certainly, I would suggest, uh, an important group that Kishida has to keep happy. Uh, that they obviously are going to be under pressure from rising prices, which is a highly uh, contentious issue in Japan and likely to uh, be a, a p- very political issue uh, for Kishida to deal with. He, he's, he's put out uh, his new, uh, effectively, uh, plan, uh, new capitalism, which has a tendency, and depending on how one reads it, and, and he has said slightly conflicting things about it, um, to be a little bit left-leaning, uh, potentially moving away from some of Abe's reforms. Uh, he's backpedaled on a number of things so far, depending on the market's reaction, depending on uh, his political supporters' reaction. So I think uh, the, the jury is, is out, but I would suggest that the absence of Abe is going to be... Uh, be quite difficult for him in the in the short term, whether or not he can cons- cons- consolidate his power base and actually take advantage of the vacuum within 
the party that Abe leaves is it remains to be seen. But I will defer to Richard to uh, to, to probably uh, provide some more detailed knowledge on on the issues. No, no, thank you very much, James. And I, I think you've covered many of, of the very important points there. Um, I, I add one thing, which is that um, Mr. Abu was was a leader. Um, I think there have been three very clear charismatic leaders in, in, in really post-war history. There, there was there was Mr. Abe. There was um, actually his, his grandfather, Mr. Mr. Kishi, you know, way back in the in the in the fifties or the sixties. And there was this man, Mr. Nakasone, uh, who was who was the prime minister in the eighties. Each of those leaders stood out. Um, in, in that they could mark out a direction. Um, it, it, was, it was charisma, it was psychological dimension, even more than policy. But charisma and psychological dimension are important in a country like Japan, um, which um, I, I think certainly in the entire post-war period has somewhat questioned its, its, its purpose and, and, and role. Um, he, as, as um, James mentioned, uh, of course has had to focus, as Mr. Kishida focuses now, on, on, on the aged electorate, um, but there was a growing interest by uh, young people, by professionals uh, in the political sphere when Abe was in power, um, because the man was uh, able to dynamize in many ways the corporate sector, he was able to drive, I think, people's motivation in a way that we hadn't seen for a long time. The, the reforms that he made in the labor markets uh, allowed that uh, much larger pool of, of contract workers, many of whom are, are women, who are coming back into the workforce, um, to, to, to re-enter work um, which had previously been difficult, in fact, because labor laws were rather tough in Japan. It was difficult to hire and even more difficult to fire. Um, we, we've had experience of that even in our own small um, operation in, in Japan. Uh, Abe drove all of that. Um, he was a leader. Um, and while Mr. Mr. Kishida is, is, is an excellent man, I, I think many Japanese people would, would say that there isn't perhaps quite a clear sense of vision that one has with him yet. Now, you don't need vision to win elections. You need people to go into ballot boxes and, and mark your name. And, and, and they're doing that. Um, the, the recent uh, Upper House Senate, uh, with House of Councillors in English uh, election, was very successful for Mr. Kishida. The Abe um, uh, tragic assassination, I, I think, helped that to some extent. But, but, but it wasn't only that, that there isn't a clear opposition in Japan. But, but, but to have a leader uh, with vision um, who can inspire people um, in, in a country which I think has, again, questioned its role in many ways uh, is, is important. Um, and Mr. Kishida may well grow into that role. Um, there are others, I think, um, around him, notably Mr. Kono, K-O-N-O, Taro Kono, uh, who's been a growing presence uh, within the Liberal Democrat Party for a while. Um, who could assume that mantle, I think, of, of leadership and vision. And it'll be interesting to see how all that develops. I want to stress that um, this isn't a, a prerequisite for investing in, in, in Japanese companies. Um, what, what Japanese politics offers right now is stability and um, a, a reasonable growth focus and, and a reasonable deregulatory and, and, and governance focus. Um, that's really rather good compared to what we have in other economies where what one could face a pendulum swing. In, in, in political direction, uh, on, on tax policy, and on regulation. Japan offers stability, even if it's rather boring stability. Yeah, I think when we look at the political picture today, a bit of a boring stability would be greatly appreciated elsewhere. But um, your yeah, thoughts and condolences with Mr. Abe's family and friends and everybody um, affected by you know the loss of him. Um, moving on to our 
final question and I'm just keen to get both of your outlook for Japan overall going forward. You know, is it going to be left behind or potentially lead the charge when the macroeconomic picture changes and going back to our original starting block with the Bank of Japan, do you think it's going to maintain this policy path, you know, throughout this inflation journey that, you know, is going on or is there a macroeconomic threshold that could force it to change? Would it do you think it will divert from this path under, you know, kind of the pressure it's facing? Uh, maybe starting with you, Richard. I think the Bank of Japan will stay with the current policy. Um, and while I hesitate to say anything too dramatic, I think it, it could stay this way for a generation. Um, already, it's actually pretty much pursued this policy for a generation because mm-hmm. monetary easing didn't really begin with Mr. Kuroda. It really began with the um, with the 1980s um, uh, post-Plaza Accord um, easing, which the Bank of Japan uh, agreed on. When, when Reagan and Nakasone agreed to revalue the, the yen dollar rates, the Bank of Japan responded with significant quantitative easing, and, and it's more or less continued doing that through the 1990s into the 2000s, and Mr. Kuroda's policy was, was really a, a reiteration of that on a slightly different scale. So we've had a generation of quantitative easing. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we have a generation more. Um, that, at the very least, um, supports the Japanese economy. Uh, th- that political landscape that we discussed, again, um, at, at least removes negatives about investing in Japan. It would be great if there were more very concrete positives as well, and, and there may be. Um, but the specific equity choices which James and I need to make uh, on, on companies which, which speak our language, which do great things, even on a global perspective, uh, and, and often are undervalued, and I perhaps um, uh, in a different forum go head to head on the details with, um, with, with James on, on, on a couple of stocks like Ovik. Uh, but the specific cases that we have there, the opportunities we have in Japan, I think are unparalleled. Uh, and I think that more and more um, overseas investors are discovering those. And that will be our opportunity in Japan. It, it's not the, the Nikkei 225 that's our big opportunity. It's the, the specific opportunities we have. Um, which will allow us to outperform not only the Japanese index, but again, global indices as we invest in these global leaders that are that are being discovered. And James, your closing thoughts and your outlook um, for Japan going forward? Sure. I, look, I think in a, in a very short, short term, uh, Japan's economy is, uh, you know, it's largely export oriented. It's largely cyclical in na- nature, which leaves it more susceptible to a, a global slowdown, uh, I would suggest. Um, and I would also note that because of its, uh, its COVID policies, Japan's economic recovery has lagged other developed market economies. Um, and it's an increasingly an economy which is more dependent on imported goods. Um, you know, interestingly, Japan imported more electronics from Southeast Asia than it exported um, this year. So there, 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 are, there are big uh, issues at stake in Japan. And I think Japan will remain a very interesting place particularly for economists to think about where are the rest of the developed markets and places like China heading. Um, You know, one of the big issues that Japan will have to deal with uh, over the coming decades is obviously its shrinking population uh, and all of the implications that that will entail for its domestic economy, not not just the fact that, that, um, you know, the the, the number of people in the country is is shrinking, but also that the number of people, the baby boomers who are, turning 70 are going to consume a lot less things, as Richard has already commented. So so I think that the the political uh, firmament and the uh, macroeconomic and monetary outlook for Japan uh, is going to be uh, 
very different to the rest of the world and it will have its own very unique set of challenges, which I think will be closely watched by uh, economists and investors because I think it, it is uh, it is several years ahead of some other economies that are going to be challenged in similar ways. So I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. I would agree with Richard that, that Japan as a place to invest is is and remains very intriguing. Uh, there are a number of uh, super high quality businesses in Japan uh, that are you know, competitive on a, on a, on a global uh, stage. Uh, and I certainly uh, wouldn't dismiss Japan uh, as a place to invest uh, for any long-term investor. I, I think it's um, it's very unique uh, set of uh, businesses uh, that, that, that um, offer you know, good long-term growth prospects. Typically, not necessarily linked with domestic Japan, but are you know more international in, in focus and global. Uh, and so, um, I, I would I would say that I, I think you know Japan structurally has many challenges. Uh, from an investment standpoint, um, you know, it's moving in the right direction. It's got a long way to go, but there are definite nuggets in, in the Japanese market for investors to, uh, to, to benefit from. Sure. Yeah, thank you both so much for your time. A really interesting conversation. And um, thank you to everybody for listening as well. Mm-hmm.